Psalm 38 is described as a psalm of David, a memorial. Let me just read the first 12 verses. O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, and chasten me not in your burning anger. For your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long, for my loins are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly cursed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sign is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, even that, has gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my kinsmen stand afar off. Those who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek to injure me have threatened destruction, and they devise treachery all day long. This psalm is classed by, in church history, it's generally been called a penitential psalm. A psalm where the person was expressing remorse for their sin and throwing themselves on the mercy of God. Before, we've studied Psalm 6 and Psalm 32 that are usually put in that category. And so Psalm 38 uh, does deal quite... Uh, often with David's sin as we'll see Lord willing in a moment we're always looking for what the Psalms teach us about God and right in the first three verses you see references to God's wrath God's wrath is kindled not just indiscriminately but it is the result of David's sin But he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, and chasten me not in your burning anger. Psalm 6 began in a similar way. Psalm 6 was also characterized as a penitential psalm. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Now, the word for Wrath in Psalm 38 verse 1 is different from the word wrath in Psalm 6 and verse 1. But the point is, it's the same kind of idea. Do not rebuke me in your wrath and chasten me not in your burning anger. There's a phrase in Habakkuk 3 verse 2 which says in, in judgment, oh, excuse me, in wrath, remember mercy. He's spoken of a coming judgment and he just begs God in wrath, remember mercy. Remember to show your mercy in the midst of wrath. And I think that's the same thing that David is asking. Rebuke me not in your wrath. Chasten me not in your anger. And he pictures the judgments of God as arrows. Your arrows have sunk deep into me and your hand has pressed down on me. Sometimes when the book of Psalms deals with arrows, it is arrows that the wicked person is shooting uh, at the righteous. Uh, You see that in Psalm uh, 7 verse 13. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Sometimes it is the wicked shooting at the righteous when the Bible uses that phrase 
arrows. Sometimes it is the Lord judging the wicked for what they have done wrong. This is Psalm 144 verse 6. Psalm 144 verse 6. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and confuse them. But here... It is not the right it is not the right the wicked shooting at the righteous. It is not the Lord shooting at the wicked, but it's the Lord shooting at his servant. Now, that doesn't mean again God is acting maliciously or cruelly. He acknowledges that it's all because of his sin in verse three. It's because of his sin. It's because of his folly in verse 5. It is because of his iniquities in verse 4. But he's begging God, please be merciful. The pain is great. And he says, there is no soundness. There is no soundness in my flesh. Now, that particular word... For soundness, it's used only four times in the Old Testament. And one of them is in verse 7. So verse 3, verse 7 are two of the four uses. But listen to this. This is another passage that uses this phrase, soundness. Um, It's in Isaiah 1, verse 6. I'll just start with verse 5. Isaiah 1, verse 5 and 6. Where will you be stricken again? And you continue in your rebellion. The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds. Not pressed or bandaged, not softened with oil. But there's not a spot on the body of Judah that's healthy in Isaiah 1. Not a spot. Their head is sick. The sole of their foot is sick. There are bruises and welts and raw wounds everywhere. There's no soundness in it. And that's the expression that is used in the book of Psalms. If a person was bruised and battered and torn from head to toe, that is the picture that he uses to describe his condition. Anytime you compel me to put one of those verses up there in those categories, I'll try to do it. But why is all this happening to him? There's no help. And that word health is the word peace, shalom. There's no, there's no health in my bones because of my sin. Well, let's just write some of the verses about sin up. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 5. Bob? Just, I, I looked at this and I tried to figure out, it. Is, it, is, it, is it the consequences that he is in that he ascribes to God's weapons, uh, his... His arrows piercing him, and again, is it or is it his shame and his guilt of his sin, yeah. or is it a envy? We we encounter the same kind of question when we're dealing with like what kind of physical problems does he have? Because we could look at this if you try to diagnose this. Uh, on the basis just of what he says in Psalm 38. If a doctor was trying to do a diagnosis on this basis, um, as one writer said, you would determine he had most every disease known to mankind. Um, So is this to be viewed literally? Is this to be used figuratively? Um, Or, you know, how much? And it's the same kind of question you can ask about when he talks about his stings and you know is this guilt of conscience is this physical pain you know and, and so that's the same kind of thing that Bob is asking now he obviously is talking about a situation and I really didn't give an answer to that I just said you know I don't know if anybody's got an answer I didn't have one so I didn't give one uh, does anybody else have one? 
Um, but let's tie this in just a second. I mean, all these passages are talking about his sickness, and there's no sound place on him. There's no help, nothing. He, he says in verse five, "My my wounds grow foul. My wounds grow foul and fester." Now, grow foul. That is used sometimes literally in the Old Testament. For example, the first plague that struck the land of Egypt was the water (coughs) turned to blood. All the fish in the Nile died. And it says the water became foul. Same word. Second plague was the frogs. And the frogs all died. And the land became foul. It's stated in connection with the first couple of plagues. It is also stated in connection with the manna. If you gather the manna six days a week, if you save any of it over till the next day, it's going to become foul. Same word. And so, is this, and this is tying in with what Bob was asking, it's kind of, it's not giving an answer, it's just elaborating on the question. When he says, my wounds grow foul, is that literal? Or is that just kind of a picture? But have you ever been around people whose wounds and sores actually did put off a terrible smell? And that may be the description. My wounds grow foul and they fester. Now, this word for fester is used in a couple of places, uh, notably um, Isaiah 34, 4, and Zechariah 12, 14, 12, Isaiah 34, 4, Zechariah 14, 12, to talk about the rotting of dead bodies. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. Obviously, he goes into great detail and his pain is not only physical. He goes into great detail about his pain. His pain is psychological too. I'm bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. In verse 7, my loins are filled with burning now that word for burning is used only there. But again, in all of these passages, is he giving a literal description of his pain and his suffering? Or is he speaking merely in figurative terms? And what is the connection between sin and suffering? What is the connection between sin and suffering? I don't know if I should ask that just open-ended, but, uh, but Bob, you volunteered to speak, so go ahead. I did. Okay. I, I thought I saw a pin up. I saw a pin up. You may be trying to laser point me in the eye, uh, but, but go ahead. Um, my, my comment that I was thinking about making is, uh, we, I can't help but read this and think about Job. Yes. And, you know, there, there's, no, no, there's a lot of yardage there for us to read about Job. Yeah. And truly, Job's suffered physically horrendously mm-hmm. but it seems like the source of his pain was from his relationship with God that had come into question in his heart yes yes out, it wasn't out, out, out te- you know on the teeter-totter it, it it went the other way with it it was greater mm-hmm. than what he was suffering uh, physically it seems. yes yes and it seems he, like it, it's the same way here maybe Yes, and and the book of Job is an interesting case because the book of Job is a dramatic illustration of the fact that our suffering is not always directly related to our sin. 
that we can't see someone suffering intensely and say we know they've sinned to do that. We can't say that necessarily in our own lives. And, and I've known people that, that have said that. You know, this has happened to me in life. Uh, what great sin did I commit? It's not always connected. But looking at these verses, can we say that it's never connected? And there's obviously in these passages a connection between the suffering and the physical, emotional, and psychological elements. There's a connection between those and his sin. And so there is suffering because of sin, though not every time. Now, we don't always know the reason that we suffer. David is quite confident, I think, though, in this psalm, that the reason for all of his problems is because of his sin, because of his iniquity and his folly. But that is one of the ways that God uses to lead us to see how profoundly serious sin is. When we do experience the consequences of sin whether in our own body or whether in other ways, that is always a reminder to us of how horrible and hideous sin is. So, I can't give you a whole list of points to tell you when you're suffering as a faithful person like Job and you're suffering as a sinner like David. But David is conscious of this fact. In the book of Job, it's Job's friends who are pointing the finger at Job and say, you must have sinned. David doesn't have anybody around him pointing the finger at him. David is freely and fully confessing that that is the case, that I have been guilty. And let that just remind us of of the seriousness of sin as he experiences all these emotional and physical and psychological problems and and I don't mean to go beyond the text in using some of those words but it does seem like as he's describing his problems it's not fully literal but it is a way to describe just his emotional state He says in verse 9, Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sign is not hidden from you. Now, what does that show us? We've seen about the wrath of God in verses 1 through 3. We see in verse 9, it seems to me, the omniscience of God. That God knows all things. That, O Lord... um, All my desire is before you. All my desire and my sign is not hidden from you. God is well aware of all our desires and the Lord is well aware of all of our sighs. He says in verse In verse 10, my heart throbs, my strength fails me. We want to come back to that idea later. And the light of my eyes even is gone. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague. My kinsmen stand afar off. Now, this this idea ties. Bob said when he reads these words, he thinks of Job. And I think probably that's true of all of us at some level. That when we read this, we, we think of Job. Job talked about in Job 19, verses 13 through 20, how all of his friends had forsaken him in his time of difficulty, in his moments of suffering. Uh, Let me just read some of those words from Job 19. Job 19, verse 13, He has removed my brothers 
far from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed. My intimate friends have forgotten me. Those who live in my house and my maids consider me a stranger. I am a foreigner in their sight. I call to my servant, but he doesn't answer. I have to implore him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own brothers. He goes on further than that just to emphasize how those who would normally be his friends and associates had left him at his time of greatest need. I can remember reading a story years ago in the newspaper and it was about a preacher. It was about a preacher who was a member of the Church of Christ, which I found interesting. But he had Alzheimer's, and they were just telling his story. And they made this statement that often in his life, he went to visit hospitals. Preachers did that before COVID-19. As soon as they would visit hospitals and visit sick, But he said he would often visit hospitals. He says now, he's in the hospital. It's rare anybody ever comes to visit him. That wasn't necessarily surprising. But it is sad. Derek Kidner said on this verse... It is a strange thing about human experience. It's an ironic thing about human experience that those who need friends the most often attract them the least. And that's the situation at this point in his life. He is forsaken by everyone Who's close to him. And this is not something that's limited to the book of Job. We're going to find some Psalms that play into that. Uh, I want to point out a couple of things about some of the words. He says, he mentions my loved ones, my friends, and my kinsmen. Now some of your versions may have something different for, for kinsmen. But, but let me read the verse again and you, and you look at your translation. Verse 11, Psalm 38 verse 11 my loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague my kinsmen stand afar off do any of your translations have something different for kinsmen relatives relatives stand afar off any any other idea the word there that's used in verse 11 that's translated um Kinsman or relative, as Mark said in his, is a word literally which means those near me. Carries the idea of those near me. And the very use of the word is ironic. Because the next word is a word that sometimes in the Old Testament is its opposite. Those near me are far from me. So the, the whole verse is, is ironic in that sense. That that those who are closest to us sometimes are not there in the times of our greatest need. And in verse 12, those who seek my life lay snares for me those who seek to injure me have threatened me and they devise treachery all day long now his enemies really haven't been mentioned until verse 12 now some people have taken that and I don't know if this is a correct interpretation But some people take the fact that his enemies are not mentioned until verse 12 as a statement that his real problem is 
his sin and his sickness and his sin and his sickness and now the enemies are just kind of piling on in times of trouble. Is that the case? Were the enemies more at the heart of his trouble? I, I don't know all the answers to that. But in verse 12, those who seek my life like snares for me, those who seek to injure me, threaten me, and they devise treachery against them. The word that's translated devise in the New American Standard Bible is literally the word speak. It's literally speak. Now, the reason I say that is because this is going to form a contrast with the next two verses. What we find here, we find while his while his friends and kinsmen and relatives are far away, those uh, who are getting close to him are his enemies, and they're speaking their treachery all day long. But in verse 13, in, contact, in contrast to their speaking, I, like a deaf man, do not hear. I am like a mute man who does not open his mouth. Yes, I am like a man who does not hear in whose mouth are no argument. What's that mean in that context? What does what's it mean? seems like he's not even challenging those for, but then it seems like maybe he's letting it roll off too so I, I don't know yes <laughs> seems to have conflicting meanings no, yeah I, th- I think he's he just he's not responding he's just numb to it because he's in such misery. well I think all that could be true have you ever heard overheard somebody saying something bad about you in the context where you were so stunned, maybe because of who said it or what was said, that you couldn't have spoken anyway. I mean, you're just you're just speechless in response to that. And maybe that's the way he is. They are speaking treachery against him. They're devising treachery. They're speaking treachery. And he's kind of acting like he's not even hearing it. And he doesn't even know what to say. And, and, and maybe because of his pain, he feels so much pain, uh, it's hard to get a logical thought anyway. I'm not going to ever turn away or back away from the Bible teaching about God's wrath or God's indignation in verse 1 or 3. But if that's all there was to God, we wouldn't have a whole lot of hope, would we? The same God who is described as exercising wrath and anger and indignation is the same God that we can turn to for hope. And so inherent in all of this is His love for us, His care for us, the fact that God is omniscient and knows what's right and wrong and He cares about truth and He cares about the innocent prevailing. He says, I hope in You, O Lord. I hope in You. He knows the Lord loves him and the Lord has blessed him. And while his enemies are speaking in verse 12 and he is silent in verses 13 and 14, he begs God to speak in verse 15. You will answer, O Lord my God. He's dumbfounded and doesn't even know what to say. I hope in you, O Lord. You will answer. Oh, Lord, my God. <clears throat> Did you have a thought there, Bob? I just, yeah. Uh, he, he seems defenseless uh, before the Lord. He has no words to say. He speaks at four, in the end of 14, an argument. He has no mm-hmm. argument. 
It's kind of like you think about Job and contrast that. Job argued all the <laughs> yeah, yeah, until the end of the book. And then all of a sudden, he adorned himself in this humble yes. uh, state that David That's right. embraced. That's right. Yes. Here it may be these arguments are more when these people are speaking these harsh things in verse 12. Because it's the same God that he knows he's sinned against. He's running to for hope in verse 13. And answers. And, and isn't that, you know, the way it is? That the same God we know that we've offended by our sins and we know he's infinitely holy and he cannot look upon our sins with favor, but we know he's our only hope for mercy. Too. He's our only hope for mercy. And he says in verse 16, he said, For I said, May they not rejoice over me when my foot slips. Who, when my foot slips, would magnify themselves against me. He's praying, Lord, may they never have reason to rejoice. Those that are going to celebrate when I fall. Those that are going to celebrate when my foot slips. Please don't let them rejoice, O God. And he says in verse uh, 17, I'm ready to fall and my sorrow is continually before me. I don't know if Bob or Mary use these words, but, but both of what they said made me think of this. It's like he's at his breaking point. And he, he is, he has borne all he can bear. And I, I'm ready to, he knows that it, it's, it's only going to take uh, another straw to break the camel's back. And he's, he's, he's urgently pleading to God, I'm ready to fall. My sorrow is continually before me. For I confess my iniquity and I am full of anxiety because of my sin. He confesses his sin. He acknowledges his guilt. He says, but my enemies are vigorous and strong and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who repay evil for good, they oppose me because I follow what's good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, do not be far away from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. So, what does he say about his enemies? Well, he talked about his enemies in verse 12. In verse 16, they rejoice over his failures and over his slipping. But verse 19 tells us much about these enemies too. These enemies are full of life. And they are strong and they are many. They are stronger than he is. They outnumber him. They are many and they hate me wrongfully. They hate me wrongfully. And they do evil to me when I have done good to them. But even saying this, he knows he's not without guilt. And he doesn't hesitate to acknowledge his sin before God. I confess my iniquity. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. He's not blaming God when he speaks of God's wrath and indignation. He's blaming himself, but just begging, begging for mercy. He does cast blame at the enemies, however. It says they have done evil to him when he has done good to them. But he speaks of God too. God is a God of wrath. God is omniscient. He knows all. God is his hope. But he speaks of God too in verses 21 and verse 22 as the God of his salvation. Again, he is the one in whom David hopes. Oh my God, do not be far off. Hasten to my help, O Lord of my salvation. Now, the word forsake in verse 21. As he begs God here, do not forsake me, O Lord. That is the same word translated in verse 10 in the New American Standard failed. In verse 10, what failed? My heart throbs, my strength fails me. 
we come to the end of our rope and we don't have any more strength. Our strength fails us. Our strength forsakes us. But when our strength fails us and our strength forsakes us, He is begging God, do not fail me. Do not forsake me. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. He also says, oh, my God, do not be far from me. Now, remember in verse 11, those who were near him, who were supposed to be near him, his kinsmen, his relatives, those who were supposed to be near him were actually far from him. He uses that same word here in verse 21, while those who were the most surest sources of human comfort have failed him, he is begging God, do not fail me. Do not be far from me. As Psalm 27 says, Verse 10 says, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. When the most sure and reliable sources of human strength fail, God will not fail. God will not forsake us. And God will not be far away. He is our salvation. He's a God of wrath. He's a God of anger. He's a God who knows our desires and knows our needs and in whom we can place our hope. He can save us because He won't forsake us nor be far away in times of trouble. What other thoughts do you all have? Anything right there? Okay, let me... What are ways that we see Jesus as the fulfillment of Psalm 38? I thought about verse 11. My kinsmen stand far, far off. Okay. My loved ones and my friends... Stand afar off. Stand aloof from my plague. My kinsmen stand afar off. So that verse, 38.11, remember how Peter followed Jesus from afar. And after he was crucified, they stood afar off looking at him Jesus told his disciples the shepherd is going to be struck and all the sheep will be scattered he is going to be struck down and they will all be scattered and Peter said Lord though all forsake you I will never forsake you all of the disciples forsook Jesus and fled in his greatest time of crisis. If you have felt during your time of suffering and during your time of trouble that everyone forsook you and nobody was there for you, he felt that. He told his disciples who all said, Lord, we're willing to die for you. He told his disciples, and particularly Peter, James, and John, to be brought closest to him. He said, he says, I am grieved and distressed. Stay here, watch and pray. And they all fell asleep. They all 
forsook him in the time that he needed help the most. What else? Right? Uh, verses 12 through 14 talks about how his enemies lay snares for him and seek to injure him and threat, threaten destruction. They devise treachery all day long. But like a deaf man that does not hear and like a mute man who does not open his mouth, he is like a man who does not hear and whose mouth are no arguments. Okay. couple of things there. Several things there. First of all, they lay plans to destroy him. In Mark 3, verse 6, after Jesus healed on the Sabbath, immediately they went out and began plotting to destroy him. It seems like they could have waited until the day after the Sabbath. But their anger at Jesus for violating the Sabbath is so strong that they have to make plans right there on the Sabbath day for his demise. And they lay plans to destroy him. In Luke 11, in verse 54, you see the same thing. After Jesus has a long uh, disagreement with the Pharisees and scribes, uh, the text tells us that in Luke 11, verse 54, that they were plotting to destroy him. As we go on from that, it says that, that... David says, I was like a deaf, I like a deaf man do not hear. Uh, and I am like a man in whose mouth there's no argument. So, remember how Jesus was silent as a lamb is led to the slaughter, is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? When Jesus stands before um, Pilate, he, he doesn't open his mouth. Let's, let's look at that passage. Matthew 27 and verse 14. Just look at that and in context a little bit. Matthew 27. Starting verse 11. Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priest and the elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Now listen to this question. Do you not hear how many things they testify? Against you. But he did not answer him. With regard even to a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. David said, I am like a deaf, I like a deaf man do not hear. And like a mute man do not open his mouth. Pilate specifically asked, do you not hear? What they're saying. And when they ask them that question, Jesus continues to remain silent. No, Psalm 38 is not a prophecy exclusively of Jesus. Because, as we wrote upon the board a moment ago, He connects His suffering to sin over and over again. It's not an exclusive prophecy of Jesus. But we can also see that Jesus experienced so many things, so many things that the the innocent sufferer of Psalm 38 experienced. And that statement, look at verse 20, Psalm 38 verse 20, those who repay Evil for good. They oppose me because I follow what is good. When Peter talks about the life of Christ, he says that Jesus went about in Acts 10.38 doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. He went about doing good. And so Jesus did good. How did they repay His good? By doing evil. 
What else do you see? How about 6-10, Jesus' time before his crucifixion, Gethsemane praying. Okay, bent down, mourning, loins filled with burning. Hmm. I hadn't thought about those, but certainly those may be a good good addition to my notes there, Mark, because those may describe some of his physical pain. It's a good description. This was one I was going to mention too. Look at verse verse 5. He said, My wounds grow foul, my wounds grow foul and fester. That word for wound is used only seven times in the whole Old Testament. Only seven times. One of those times, though, is Isaiah 53 in verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. It's the same word. Now I'm also seeing in Isaiah 53 seems like it's used as a noun and as a verb. Okay, it's used as a noun. By his wounds we are healed. It says in the New American Standard, by his scourging, but by his wounds we are healed. Now, here ways Jesus Jesus experienced the suffering of the righteous man of Psalm 38. But also, I would say to this, to add to this a little bit, Jesus lifts the burden of the author of Psalm 38. He lifts the burden. In verse 4, my iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. As a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. I think about Jesus coming to me. All you who are who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest and take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am meek and gentle in heart and you will find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All you who labor and are heavy laden, if you feel yourself drowning under the load of your sins, if you feel yourself like your iniquities have gone over your head and they are a weight that is too heavy to carry, He is the answer. He is the answer. He is looking for people who are burdened down by their sins and begging them, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And He promises, I, I will give you rest. Yes, Mary. Um, in verse 1, I kind of see um, shadowing of Jesus in the garden asking if there's another way. Let this come. Okay. That may, well, that may be right. Dreading the, the anger of God because he knew he was yes. separated from him. Okay. And definitely the, uh, the, the arrows of God that he will experience. So maybe the, in the garden in the, of Gethsemane. In the prayer, Jesus said, If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Matthew 26, verse 39 is one of the places that you see that. 
fail. I wondered similarly, the last verse then, do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God, do not fear, do not be far from me. It reminds me of Psalm 22. Yeah, and it's the same word forsake in both passages. But go ahead. Well, it just reminds me of Psalm 22, which Jesus does quote from on the cross, right? I know. Could it be... And it, I, I, I know there's a lot of controversy if you're not familiar with it. And it's not even, it, it goes a lot bigger than people that we would generally worship with as far as um, Jesus on the cross and what is his relationship to the Father at the time. And I do think that we need to, I want to be really careful because the relationship between God and Christ. Christ is a unique person in human history. He was both God and man at the same time. And so I don't want to be too quick to act like I know all the answers. But could it be that he was forsaken? That we would never be forsaken? Could it be that God stood afar off so that he would be ever near us in times of trouble? And certainly, we know if it were for, not for him, we would have no hope. And so, to me, those are reasonable thoughts. You know, but, but you're right to make that connection. And, and uh, that is the same word for forsaken that's used in Psalm 22, verse 1. That's, those are very good thoughts, you all. Well, did Brad not even leave us a, leave us a song? There's, Is there a song on Psalm 38? I don't know. I just clicked. That might be an old. No, that's three. It's an old one. <laughs> I wasn't okay. here last. So tomorrow we'll make sure to shame him. Make him feel bad. Um, no, I, I'm sure on Psalm 37 that may have worn him out because that was such a long psalm, and he had to incorporate so many different things. He may. He may um, uh, he may have not been able to make it this week. I think it's also Psalm thirty-seven. Yeah, it's just see you see he's got Psalm thirty-seven spread out everywhere. You got four or five songs on that. So, but thank you guys for being here and for us studying. And Mark, would you want to lead us in prayer as we close? Sure. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful to you for this time we've had together this evening to study this psalm. Uh, We're thankful for uh, Tommy's presentation. We're thankful for the the good thoughts that we can gather from it and help us to apply these to our lives so that we can be better servants. And we pray for all those that are sick and for all those that are grieving over deaths of loved ones that you will bless them and may each one look to you for strength and comfort and guidance and we pray that you will be with us that we can influence others for Christ and that we can show the right example to others we ask that you will be with us to to do your will as we leave this place in Jesus name Amen. Amen. Amen